0: Join the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy and best-selling authors, including Cheryl Strayed, Stephen Rowley, and Rebecca Yaros, on October 11th for the National Celebration of Reading in Washington, D.C. Learn more at barbarabusheventsorg slash ncor2023. Welcome to the Harper's Magazine Podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. I'm speaking to you from the recent past, but this episode will be released on Monday, September 18th. Tonight, we will be having an event in partnership with the Center for Fiction in downtown Brooklyn to celebrate our Gen X-themed September issue. I will be in conversation with Harper's Easy Chair columnist, Rachel Kushner, and actor, writer, director, and all-around Gen X idol, Ethan Hawke. To celebrate, we are re-airing an episode from October 2018 in which Rachel discusses her essay, Red Letter Days, with web editor Violet Luca. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I hope to see some of you tonight. In-person tickets for the event are sold out, but you can still register to live stream the event at centerforfiction.org.
1: So I asked you to bring one that's like not related at all.
2: To I know. The, to gruesome I know. Which us. is hard. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't <Yeah>. be, but <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know what to say about fiction that I enjoy at the moment. I just feel grateful that it exists. <laughs> uh, sure. I you know. Sure. <laughs> and so I, the reason I suggested the the uh, Melan Tan um, collection is just because. Although it contains a number of kind of like violent incidents and whatever, it's just funny and light in a weird way that Mm -hmm. you don't expect. And it's just somewhat soothing to me, this sort of like slightly surrealist lightness about it, which is perhaps more the way that you have to deal with such things in your own mind, but, um, (laughs) but not... So this is a collection of short stories, right? right. Many of which are kind of um, structured in this uh, around a, a kind of a group of three in some way. There's one about um, one's obsession with one's partner's exes. And, and there's one about this girl who goes to meet a couple who've advertised for a, a third. And then it turns out that they're, they're actually looking for someone to, um, to replace the wife. After the wife is gone, mm-hmm. she has she has cancer. But it's sort of where surrealism kind of meets just like everyday life. So to anybody listening who doesn't
1: want to think about all the stuff, we're getting into it. Turn off. <laughs> <laughs> just reading in preparation for today, I read all of Lacey M. Johnson's The Reckoning, which yes. is just such an incredible book. And specifically, I mean, I wish sort of seeing this weird intersection of things that happened many years ago and seeing how they are related to things that are happening now, Um, the chapter of Against Whiteness opens with this anecdote of this old, rich, white, privileged man flipping (laughs) out (laughs) and then um, a room full of Black and Latino women turning to the author and being like, why didn't you say anything? Which is such a... The the structure of it is so fascinating, but that's not nearly the, I don't know, I'm just sort of in awe of it, really, in that the way in which she takes all of these little things that are happened in in many different parts of her life and relates them to this idea of justice and what is justice and how can we work towards something that is not just a cosmetic fix.
2: Right. And that is also about holding all of our different kinds of responsibility in balance so that yes. so that piece is really interesting because she's sort of trying to take responsibility there for her failure to sort of stand up in that situation and 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 part of what she's describing is this um ambivalence that she has about that because she because she doesn't see herself as white in some sense because mm-hmm. she's uh, working class or as she says is the sort of less polite term, white trash. Yeah. This question of, if you don't identify with power, but you still have more of it than whoever else is in the room, and, and, and how does that... What is your responsibility? How are you supposed to feel that? And, and her kind of almost angry reaction internally at being accused of right. something when she feels she's she's somewhere else. She She shouldn't have to... So yeah that's that's why it's called the reckonings so these yeah. very different um, different levels of, of thing and and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to talk about mm-hmm. these things because um, so many people want to feel that they're speaking from a position from an unassailable position and just right. you know so few people are yeah. we're, you're, we're not so
1: well yeah in, in fact nobody probably is. Right.
2: Yeah, (laughs) right. And I suppose, you know, then the problem is that a lot of the most powerful people seem to be able to speak from this confident position of of being unassailable and at the same time from a position of kind of angry, aggrieved entitlement, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, we see a lot of that. And that's what the guy who's yelling at the beginning of the scene is doing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, because the book begins with her talking about her experience going to different places and talking about her, she (laughs) took her experience of the experience of being, you know, kidnapped and raped by this man she was dating and how after a talk, there are certain types of people that will come up to her. There's like a genre where there's somebody who has experienced something similar and then people who raise their hand and are like, well, don't you want him dead? And questioning that impulse of, again, and it goes back to this sense of like, Somebody being aggrieved, somebody being wronged. And how do you correct that, but without relying on these traditional sort of, like, uh, cause and effect? like Eye this for public. an eye. Yeah, eye for an eye. And, like, just breaking that thing down was just so incredible because it's always just that Hammurabi's code was originally, this is a limit on how much you can do to somebody, not literally you must do this thing that yes. they did. <laughs>
2: And it's like, oh well, well, right, exactly. <laughs> At most, an eye, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you 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 aim for less. Otherwise, as someone says, you know, the whole world goes blind, right? Yeah, and it's interesting, especially because what happened to her was so extreme. Yes. And obviously, in a lot of cases, we're talking about things that that exist in a grayer area than that. Um, so it becomes even more difficult to have this conversation about like what justice and responsibility look like right um but yeah i mean so she's she's talking about um the desire for revenge and whether whether one has it whether one doesn't have it whether that fixes anything but it's interesting because you know at one point she does say what she wants instead and mm-hmm. you know she, two things the, the first thing that she says is um that she wants him to kind of admit what he did and take responsibility for it. That's really the key thing. And unfortunately, that's what you often don't get. You usually don't get. Right. So in the absence of that, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. I think that part of the problem
1: of people accepting that they have done something wrong is because the idea of punishment is so built up. Her rapist fled to another country. And he has a whole other life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the author can see this through like Facebook photos and all this stuff. And he's he's, you know, he's in a country where there, I guess there is no extradition to the US. So he's found a way around what should happen to him. And so she's the author is looking for something else again. And it's really um just even the style is so fascinating where there will be not stream of consciousness, but just sort of these very quick paragraphs where she's moving between these very different things i mean i think in particular the chapter where she's talking about um execution by the state is really like it's a very it's very intense read but you're always there and it doesn't feel frivolous or dashed off or anything like that it's very easy to sort of see how she's making these sometimes
2: incredible leaps between things. Right. It's like a collage mm-hmm. almost. And so you see these, these resonances and also these contradictions. And I do think that's, that's partly what I thought was striking about the book that she is looking at kind of individual responsibility and then collective responsibility mm-hmm. and, and crime at different levels as well. So it's it the oil spill, the BP oil spill a yeah. few years ago. And, um, and also this, uh, this, this, sort of radioactive waste that is kind of lurking underneath this this sort of like right next to this neighborhood that and all of those things um you know in different ways she she links them but i think by with this collage effect she doesn't she doesn't link them too closely she sort Mm -hmm. of there's always this tension of like what would it mean uh, who should be taking responsibility, and how and to what extent um, in all of these different situations, and how are they how are they linked, but you partly have to figure that part out for yourself, which is one of the the things that I think is sort of brilliant about that that book, but the question of i mean it's interesting with the 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 man who who did this to her in the the first essay though. Because obviously she's saying, okay, I don't want revenge. I want this other thing. Mm-hmm. And she sort of knows she's not going to get this other thing. And at the same time, there's an implication, but it's it's not really spelled out that... I mean, there's a sense, to me anyway, reading it, that that he's already kind of being punished by being himself, even though, in fact, he's got this whole other light. It's mm-hmm. like she can see in the pictures that he is, in some sense, even if only... Um, kind of metaphorically doing the same thing again you know she can see that he's still this extremely miserable person (laughs) unsettled person and uh, you know the new woman that he's with is presumably suffering in some way and he's presumably suffering in some way that doesn't seem to give her any kind of satisfaction or any or any you know it shouldn't but it's a sort of strange unspoken thing in the essay that she doesn't want him to be punished but he is being punished yeah. in some way yeah um, i mean
1: being uprooted and forced to never return to your home basically
2: that seems like an intent. but also just being unable to relate to other people yes <laughs> that, yes you know um having whatever whatever is in him that whatever the reason is that he did these things is still it's still there it's unresolved
1: yeah another interesting aspect of the book is to me at least is her talking about teaching writing and the experience of being in academic settings and that there is an unnamed man who is covetous of her ability to you know have this insane trauma and then use it to sell books and it's like again I think she's sort of jumping around between these different things but it's like These are very familiar situations, certainly to anybody who knows academics or writers or just how vicious people or just cruel and unempathetic people can be when they don't get what they want and envision, well, gee, it must be really easy to sell books. Yeah, that was shitty, I bet. (laughs) But you're just (laughs) not like the inability
2: of certain people to not acknowledge humanity. Absolutely. And also, I think there's this skewed sense of the individual versus the collective, if you mm-hmm. will. Like, yeah. so, for example, this guy is having trouble selling his memoir. And so he says, you know, what do I have to do? You know, right. do I have to be kidnapped and etc. in uh-huh. order to sell a memoir? But which, of course, like leaves out the fact that... Um, you know, a zillion men like this are still selling their memoirs. If you yes. look around, there yes. they are. And you know, um, but a zillion is obviously my my technical term for uh, for how precise. many of those came out this year. But there, there, you know, it's, there are a lot. And it's perhaps true that you have more of a different kind of memoir now coming out. But if you think about the number of people who are suffering violent incidents, you know, all of the time. And don't get to write their memoir about it, that's obviously a much larger number. Yes. So there's a sort of <laughs> bit of a skewed sort of math there going on, I right. think. And it
1: ultimately gets back to this notion that by talking about these issues, you're taking something away from everyone else who has been talking since time <laughs> began. Yeah. And it's really not and the fact that this is not she's doing something very interesting formally she's doing things that are just like very insightful and you know a lot of times unresolved and just asking questions in an interesting way and so the idea that it's like well you know this poor guy he didn't get to talk to you know talk about driving around in a car with his dog and really finding himself or something you know that's like well what is really actually being lost here probably not much I don't know I really loved it and again just a super intense read that is I mean I found myself doing this I kept almost like binge reading it because it is just so easy to get into that flow of her prose and just go into these really um dark but necessary places.
2: Right and you always sort of think that you know where she's ending up and then she right. she actually there's another turn she mm-hmm. goes somewhere else which is interesting. I mean I think you know, there's a tendency sometimes, you know, at the end of certain essays, you almost feel, oh, it's, this is a very hopeful note to yeah. end on for this <laughs> subject. And you sort of, you want to question it. But then, of course, you know, you you, you immediately jump somewhere else, quite dark. And I actually think it's, it's quite brilliantly um, handled those shifts. Mm-hmm. There's the one about... Um, speaking truth to power and uh, philomela and you know um speaking about what's happened to you which unfortunately um you know was one of the moments where i really thought oh okay this is this is unrealistically hopeful (laughs) in it's (laughs) in where it (laughs) ends up but i think it's not a coincidence that that's that's not where the book ends you know that's squeezed in the middle there and yeah (laughs) it opens out into these much bigger more intractable problems from there
1: did you feel like Rebecca Traister's Good and Mad sort of falls into that trap of being the authoritative voice when in fact there is always going to be more and more and more stuff?
2: Yeah, I think. um,
1: That was a leading question, but I read your review. I
2: think that. um, I think that it is it's a really interesting moment for Rebecca Traster to be out there on book tour because, you know, this is a moment where so many people are feeling so angry and Mm -hmm. rightly so. And, you know, the tensions are, she does address them in the book, you know, the tensions that are created by, you know, for example, the fact that anger in itself isn't necessarily a sign um, that you've witnessed an injustice. I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes that's why one is angry, but sometimes you're angry because... You didn't get what you felt you were entitled to, and that's a very different. The feeling might be the same to you, unfortunately, and I think that's maybe the problem with using anger as, as a political tool. It's mm-hmm. just very unreliable, and uh, different people feel extremely angry about about uh, different things. So I think that's that's where. Um, you somewhat run into trouble and she actually you know she does address this question of you know some white women who have perhaps been quote-unquote radicalized Mm -hmm. more recently after Trump's election and with some of these things that and even Kavanaugh now although of course the book was written before that but um she does talk about the problem of um that other women who have been organizing for longer and who have had a different life experience might have other things to be angry about and it, it, they might feel angry against those same those same groups who are now... And so there's not an automatic solidarity to be had between all of these different kinds of people. I'm not sure that that's always totally resolved in the book and that, you know, there's a feeling sometimes that, well, we just need to know that... Other people were there first and they were already doing this work. And now we're joining the same fight and we just Mm -hmm. have to be respectful of. And of course, the problem is that you're not it's not always the same fight and you're not always on the same side. It's that's difficult to know how to resolve.
1: Yeah, I mean where were all these people for like Black Lives Matter protests? Right, exactly. And, and that's not something I don't feel I mean, like, some people
2: were there, right? But, yeah, but some. Some.
1: <laughs> Very small percentage. Right, but, exactly. That's, yeah. that's,
2: that's the problem. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I had a little problem with the book just in terms of how she sort of saw this as like her duty to understand what her work is now and that. I don't know. That just seems like a very sort you of, mean as a as a right as a as journalist a, as a yes as a journalist as like a truth teller or that you know she has some sort of, I mean yeah there is a moral obligation to journalism certainly certainly there is but it felt sometimes the little sort of twisting and relating everything it's like well you know Shirley Chisholm is very important right. it's like well yeah but come on. It's yeah. not the same thing. It's absolutely not
2: the same. It thing. is not the same thing. No, but I and I think that part of that it partly comes from a danger of being um, you know, when you are a kind of visible feminist on the Internet, you mm-hmm. obviously get attacked from many sides. And I think you might develop a sort of unrealistic sense of where you are and what role you're playing on right. behalf of everybody else. Right. Yeah. Like you might share some enemies with a lot of different people and it doesn't. Um, and what you're doing might be important, but it it might not be. Yeah. As you say, you might not actually be at the forefront of the battle that you think you're at the forefront of. Um Again, it's this problem of perspective and, yeah, and what it means for any given person to take responsibility for their part in what's happening. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's sort of it's the same problem in reverse, right, that you, you might have the responsibility if you were the white woman in a given room to mm-hmm. s- sort of speak up. And you also might have the responsibility not to speak up, <laughs> you know sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, a friend of mine said recently, you know, like um, very few things are actually uh, caused by you doing nothing. Like sometimes there are some people and some occasions in which you know doing nothing is actually really the best thing yes. you can do. <laughs> doing nothing, saying nothing. Yeah. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Don't do anything.
1: There are parts where she's sort of trying to be like, look, just because I'm being attacked on the internet isn't the same thing as, you know, being physically attacked oh, or whatever. But I think there needs to be sort of this recognition in talking about anger. And again, sort of getting at the nuance that's in Lacey Johnson's book, where on Twitter or online, it is very easy to think that everyone is as mad about some x-men movie advertisement where a woman is being choked as there is about harvey weinstein serially raping women there's like this weird flattening that happens yeah
2: context collapse definitely yeah
1: yeah. so it's 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 i feel like it's sort of a missed opportunity for her to sort of dive in and be like well what does anger even mean now and is there a way to sort of I don't know. I'm just sick of celebrities telling me, like, go out and vote. It's like, I've been voting. I know. It's, I've not, been working it. <laughs> it's not, not working out. It's not working out. And I don't want to hear about Hillary Clinton again losing. I can't listen to this ever again. I know. I know. It's and... been two years. Anyway, that was just some of my problems. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But, I mean, I, I have to say I am maybe more of a why women have better sex under socialism. That's way more my speed that's preaching to the choir. So yeah. I would love I would love to hear what you thought of that. Maybe it's
2: a little slight but I was just like, yes. It boss. is. It yes. is. It's very slight but I just I just appreciate it coming along at yes. this moment. That's, yes. Uh, that's it. Um yeah, I think uh and I also appreciate that uh we are in a moment when something like this is just Sort of in the air, you yep. know. That's um, because only a few years ago, you know, when I was growing up, you really couldn't couldn't take seriously anything involving the word socialism, yep. or you know. And I'm from England, where you know we do still have sort of a national health right, service, in, right. but it's still it just it's just a sort of embarrassment. The idea that there might be any other way of doing anything and organizing anything just third way. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. No, I sort of, I thought this was kind of a fun approach to that subject. I guess she's sort of flipping the personal, this political thing. And she's also, I would say, you know, if this book belongs to a genre it's sort of almost like this reverse self-help you know (laughs) where instead of saying oh you know your life isn't going very well you feel bad you know let's look at what you individually are doing to sabotage yourself it's like the other way around it's like let's look at how you're being structurally and impersonally sabotaged and let's sort of consider what might be done about that um, which I appreciate. Um, No and
1: it's super helpful because again I feel like there is so much effort put towards these very, very, very cosmetic fixes, Yes. where, you know, oh, the Academy is old and white? Well, let's get a bunch of people from all over the world, these world auteurs, to watch Academy screeners. Like, who fuck? like, (laughs) come on, that's not fixing anything. That's just something to say to make yourself, you know, seem as if this situation is being seriously addressed and it's clearly not and you could see it in what movies are being made and what movies win however sorry to digress into movie world but um I, i i don't know it was it was truly refreshing to see her just make a very strong case and as you say the things that are bothering you it's not you right it's the whole world that is messed up and weird and it's not that you're a victim it's that this system is not set up to address the problems that you have, because it wasn't made by a person like you.
2: Right. I think that often there's this difficulty in talking about sex or relationships as anything other than an individual problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though everybody's individual problems sort of, you know, there are such clear patterns in um, the form that they take. And so, I mean, I thought, you know, obviously the the book, she's sort of... um, she addresses and in, in, at the beginning in passing that she's, you know, she's talking about like cis women and she, mm-hmm. because it's, it's to do with um, what was, what data was collected over time. And she's looking at what the experience of women was in these socialist countries mm-hmm. um, before 1989. And, and you know the comparisons between East Germany and West Germany, and but there are some quite amazing things. You know this this question of like whether the so-called orgasm gap was a, <laughs> a sort of Western capitalist phenomenon almost yeah. entirely, and of course, you know, as we know, like ninety percent of statistics are made up. So right. you know we, we don't want to take we don't want to take some of that too seriously, but some of them are very striking. Like the mm-hmm. the question of you know that you, you're looking in in sort of West Germany and you're saying um, you know how was your last sexual experience and something like you know 80 something percent of the men had a great time and you know 40 percent of the women had a great time or whatever (laughs) whereas in east germany it seems like everybody's it's about sort of uh, three quarters of everybody feel exactly the same (laughs) so um again extremely simplistic but but um but at the same time there is there is enough in it that it's that it's pretty striking and especially the idea that large economic forces have a direct effect on one's personal life it's just that's just so intuitively true that it's kind of helpful to see it laid out in this kind
1: <laughs> yeah because so much of the rhetoric against state socialism was that oh well that's not that's unnatural and capitalism is natural because it's all about competition and like if you're good it pays off and we're clearly coming to this point, we're sort of hitting a wall where it's like, that's clearly not what the end game of this thing is. And that, you know, you can sort of free yourself. This has nothing to do with nature. Again, these larger forces aren't just things that are out in the world, you know, that will inevitably happen to you. These are things that can absolutely be changed and yeah, you can, as the book says, you can totally
2: have better sex under <laughs> socialism, right? Exactly, or even under just like social democracy. Yeah, because <laughs> so, so. she makes she does make the distinction
1: between like state socialism, where there is like this intense repressive force, and then between like, oh yeah, you know, in Finland, you know, you don't die so early; it's good. <laughs> you don't have to pay twenty thousand dollars a year
2: for childcare as you might do, and. uh New York City. Right, exactly. And the idea that uh, that that wouldn't, um, that kind of thing isn't a consideration in, you know, whether you get married and who you marry and how all of that goes. Right. It's just extremely unrealistic. I mean, that, yeah, the idea of the kind of natural um, sphere of like sex and relationships that somehow magically takes place, just, I don't know, (laughs) behind closed doors and is not affected by... You know, the fact that no one can make rent and no more <laughs> to have children is just it's just sort of laughable, really. But I mean, that's the, the strange thing about reading a book like this is it is a little bit slight and it, it's you're, you're reading it and you're thinking, well, yeah, like, tell me something that I don't know. But, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, the way that we're so used to talking about things, certainly in England and in America Private life is still sort of so individualized in the way that people talk about it, I think. Even just, yeah, unconscious yeah. assumptions about things, you know. I sort of felt for her friends, whom she uses as little anecdotes. <laughs> <in> the, <laughs> I always feel for those people, yeah. the people in the illustrative anecdote oh. about, you know, um, especially about this kind of subject you know, Ken. Oh God, some of them are so brutal. Ken who marries for money or uh, yeah, they're really...
1: Oh, I forget her name but the one woman who like is basically captive of her husband and oh, like... Oh God, because we're... she's not
2: earning her own money. Yes, yes, yes. That's horrible. I know, and one wonder's like, is that a real friend? I guess it must be but that's... Oh. <laughs> let's hope she doesn't read the book. Oh, um,
1: well, hope she does and she starts revolution. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be out there. She'll be out front, Karen or whatever her name is.
2: Yeah. The problem, the problem with life under capitalism is that you, you know, you, you sort of the, the choices that are available to you um, are such that, you know, it might well be. And in fact, you know, it, it's clear from another example in that book that it might well be a, a more rational economic choice, for example, to, you know. Just marry a certain person and not work, and you know, especially when you're in a situation where if you did work, you wouldn't be making as much as you have to pay on on childcare, etc. Right. So you, you know, even if you assume that everybody is a rational economic actor, which is a problem in itself, yeah, but let's on. say that you did, <laughs> <laughs> you can see the kind of terrible irrational effects and the accumulating inequality that that stems even from that. Yeah, that's what I thought was lightly but helpfully laid out <laughs> in that, in that yeah. book.
1: I did also have this sense of sort of being frustrated
2: by how slight it is. Like oh, yeah, you could, it could have gone a lot further in yeah. a lot of different directions. And it's
1: hard to sort of guess the, end, the author's end game if she really thinks that this is going to be passed around and sort of like women will be like, oh, yeah. I can read that. And yeah, I have a, these are all valid points.
2: I think that the key thing with both this and the Tracer book is this uh, reverse self-help element that I was was talking about before because I think that the weaknesses of both books, although they're very different, um, tend to be, it's a question of address. It's like, who do you think you're talking to and what do you expect that they already know and care about? And, you know, I think that Tracer is sort of slightly trying to square a circle by um, talking in a way to all women mm-hmm. when in fact, you know, she obviously kind of means these women who have never really thought before about why they should be angry or why they are angry and what to do with that anger and whether, you know, to, uh, to try and change something about the system around them, etc. You know, that's who the book is, is really for. So it's a sort of awkward position to be in, to be saying to those people, okay, you might not have thought that these things were wrong before, you might not have noticed, and you might not have thought that there was anything you could do about it, but there is. Um, and then you're in a position where you have to say to them, and and perhaps you need to also think about what you might have been doing to contribute yeah. to the situation. And it's it's awkward. It's awkward to say that because, because you just want them to listen to the first bit. And so right. you don't want to be too threatening about, about that other bit. and Right so I think the, the slightness of the Godsey book is, is to do with she's doing this whole thing very fast and very accessibly and I think she wants it to be widely accessible right to people who haven't already thought about the connections between these things between like economics and sex for example <laughs> yeah. you know like it's sort of an introductory thing and it's trying to be welcoming to People who aren't already sold on, say, socialism (laughs) (laughs) As as the goal. Yes.
1: The Reckoning, it's not within a sort of identifiable political spectrum. Like, she's definitely coming from these issues from a left perspective, but it's never... Like, she has the vocabulary to sort of talk about these things, but she never has to sort of dance around certain aspects or go soft on certain things. Um, but she also doesn't have to say like talk about the material conditions of somebody's life because she's just sort of like through this very beautiful prose exploring those conditions and it, it's a very um, I don't know it's it's definitely one of the best things that I've read in a long time because it, it is just so easy to read but then and engrossing and sad
2: yeah I think it's also a benefit of the form that that book is not a manifesto. It is a right. collection of essays. And so she's very much coming from her own perspective, her own experience. And so she's able to draw in these sort of wider political forces in a way that, in a very organic way, trace the links between the local and the kind of national, because she's she's sort of starting from everywhere she lives. She's mm-hmm. sort of looking around and saying... OK, like in Houston or in right. Missouri, like, how does this play out? How do these dynamics play out? She's trying to illuminate something, but she's not trying to build, you know, like write a manifesto that's, right. that claims to be kind of for everyone or. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't have that that kind of awkward tension that the traster sometimes has, I think. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Violet.
1: The October issue of Readings opens with an essay by novelist Rachel Kushner, written for The Fabulist on the occasion of the opening of the 2018 Serpentine Pavilion in London. In it, Kushner recounts a story from her own life about Red, a charismatic homeless man she met while living in New York's Lower East Side in the late 90s. Making his living as a contractor, Red would leave her notes written on several feet of drywall tape, yes, feet, that were a mix of of stream-of-consciousness come-ons that would also include explanations of his situation, small talk, and song lyrics. As you'll hear, my understanding of the story and its narrative tension was shaped by my own experiences with less artful but equally persistent men and current events. For Kushner, it was simply a reflection of her time in the city and the art world and the surprise she felt after finding out who he really was. Despite our alternative interpretations, it was a fascinating conversation. So thank you for being here. Um, I just wanted to start off by asking, um, your most recent novel, The Mars Room, follows a woman who has been given two consecutive life sentences for killing a man who had been stalking her, which is a relationship that is similar to, but also very different from yours and Red's. Your experience is one that the vast majority of women have had. A man who is not a stalker, but has a persistent, expressly romantic interest in a woman, which continues even after she directly or indirectly turns him down. And so there's like this tension there because it could be the prelude to violence um given that we live in a world that is a little bit more aware of that threat that this is starting to take up a portion of the conversation do you find it's easier to write about these sorts of gray area relationships or do you worry that your enjoyment of his notes could be misinterpreted
3: whoa uh, honestly I've, none of this has occurred to me at all um But I think that my intention in writing that piece that ended up in Harper's as a reading, you know, it wasn't written originally for Harper's. It was just meant to be a remembrance about somebody I'd known who had written me these notes that um, because they're written on drywall tape and some of them are eight and 10 feet long and he would feed them under the door I always considered them works of art. He had like very distinct penmanship and um, they had a style to them. And it was funny to me that he wrote them on drywall tape and fed it under the door. And so I coiled them up and kept them in a drawer in my desk. And I moved the desk out to California when I left New York, kind of for good. I mean, I've I've never lived there since. And then every time I moved, I would move these notes um, carefully because they just seemed like they were of value um, because he was such a character. And then um, I think it was just last year, somebody that I knew in that era who knew this guy through me, um, but then later understood that he was the artist, Richard Hambleton, sent me his obituary and said, do you still have those notes? Cause somebody wanted to have a look at them. Who's trying to construct a history. Of Richard Hamilton, and I didn't really want to give them my. Didn't want to give the other guy my notes. I don't really. I know who he is. I don't really know him, and um, I kind of consider it, you know, something that's sort of mine because it. He lived next door to me. I knew him and his friend Pete, and they had a kind of connection to some other people that I knew, and it represents a time in my life in New York City. Um, so then suddenly. I got the idea to write this essay slash remembrance of him and turn it to when I figured out that he was actually this famous artist and I hadn't known it the whole time. But these dimensions that you bring in in your question, they just weren't really there. It wasn't at all a threatening type and of I friendship. I would never have connected it to my novel, which isn't to say that like you can't or shouldn't. I mean, the way that you put it, I could kind of see it Um, And maybe I didn't succeed at rendering the playfulness to me of his notes. I mean, it's true that they were kind of come ons, but they were just so goofy. There was no threat whatsoever. To me, like the narrative tension and what happens is that it turns out that um, he's this incredibly well-known guy who was called Shadow Man and made these paintings in New York City. And, you know, the, some of the stuff that he told me that I thought was kind of fanciful, like, you know, that he'd been married to this model and then that model, and then she sued him and she won, you know, the 6,000 square foot loft and Soho and all this stuff. And right. not that I need those kinds of things to be true. I couldn't care less if somebody's rich, I'd probably be less interested in them in a the way, in a way, if they were, but, um. I just assumed that he was kind of making it up and there was, you know, um, so it was more about like, for me, that just was the narrative. It's just a kind of simple, small piece of writing about this person that I had known in a particular way. Like there was a sort of intimacy there because he lived next door to me and I saw him go through some really hard times, really hard times, you know, his best friend who I don't, they kind of, I think were lovers. I don't know. He lost his eye when we were living there from, you know, he got construction dust in it. And then the next time I ran into Red, he was dead. So I just saw him go like way downhill. And, um, but it was a friendship that he and I shared, even if from his side of it, it was sort of insistently flirtatious. It was never like, he never made me feel like, was being inappropriate or anything uh, at all and I had boyfriends and I wasn't you know there was he knew there was no no chance or anything it was just the way he was
1: yeah that definitely comes across I was just thinking given that you know current events (laughs) these things are on everyone's mind for a variety of reasons yeah I
3: think that's true but you know I I guess I, I don't know I don't I feel a little awkward to contextualize it um, within these profound shifts in the culture, because there are a lot of things that uh, should change and need to change. Um, But that sort of, for me, somehow wasn't indicative of the many things that, you know, in a different context, we could discuss that are problematic about many men but this sort of wasn't one of those
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean that's what comes across in the details that you give you never have the sense that you're afraid of him but these are very desperate times for him because you know he is so insistent it's like well where could this go and then it goes this totally different direction as you say at the end where it's like well yeah he actually wasn't bullshitting you know i'm sure the neighborhood that you lived in then is now nothing but giant condos and that these sort of you could have a job that was sort of tangentially related to art you could brush up against these people who were like living in parking lots or like you know you could remodel your place and it wasn't like breaking the bank for you it's based in a very specific economy of existence and you know the ways in which those Things ultimately influence social circles and what is and is not available. It has more to say about class as it relates to sex and this period of New York City that you're writing about than what is happening now. So, all of this is to say um, this is a very specific time, and how if things had been different for Red, you might have not gotten to know him or. If you had met him when his circumstances were different, that intimacy and playfulness might not have been there,
3: yeah, I mean I you know it's hypothetical, I never thought about it. I mean, I knew a lot of artists at that time, so I could have met him some other way. I was already writing reviews for art for him, but it was what it was i mean he I assumed, as I say in the piece that you know he'd been a kind of casualty of the eighties, which seems like a bit I don't know it was like a bit cavalier of a thing to say but there were artists who kind of got on that uptick of the art market especially if you make paintings in the 80s you know art world is so different than writing fiction or any any kind of writing because there's real money at stake and um and it has a social fabric to it that's kind of required it's good and bad and people get caught up in it and they sort of, you know, develop and hone a persona and then there's money coming in and all of that. And in the eighties, there was a lot of that. And then these people who just got dropped, right? I mean, there was a pretty severe recession by 1989, 1990 um, which was just one element of the bubble of the art market in the eighties. So I just assumed he was one of those and it, it just seemed kind of, I guess, I don't know i mean he was smart he knew a lot about painting but he just talked in this way that um represented a kind of extreme disconnect from his material reality you know like his changing his clothes from a garbage bag at the top of the stairs but talking about like the dow jones and when he was gonna start shedding stocks and he was using like uh, finance lingo and i just thought he was joking and it was just funny to me I, I you know i like let people um not really into catching people out like at their contradictions or their lies or whatever not that i thought he was lying but i just let him do his spiel but it, you know apparently i guess it was real i don't know i'm just interested in people who have those kind of peaks and valleys it is a kind of new york thing in a way I mean, he, he lived longer maybe than I even thought he would. And then he had this really important show at the end of his life, and his paintings are selling for a lot. Long- I I don't really know what that means, if it means anything. It just kind of allowed me to write a piece about him.
1: How would you say that this particular experience with him, you know, you talking about this bubble and knowing other artists who were sort of like caught up in this wave and then very rudely dropped off, sort of washed ashore, washed up, um by the art market bubble um how was how yeah, i guess cuz there are so many different things that you could have sort of used to evoke this time and this place how did you construct that world and figure out what is and is not necessary to describe it because it it, it feels i mean again sort of thinking about um the mar's room just how there's so much detail, so much rarefied detail and sort of like getting out what these places look like, what they feel like. And th- and then here it's like very expedient. And obviously part of that has to do with, this is a short story and that was a novel, but there just seems, it's like so precise and oh, that's nice. very evocative.
3: Well, you know, it's a personal essay, it's a personal essay remembrance about my own life. And I'm not I'm not normally that into writing explicitly, you know, deliberately about my life in a nonfiction piece. Um, But in this one case, I guess I made an exception. very easy to conjure the details because it's all there in my memory. Um, And, you know, the process of writing is interesting in that way, at least for the writer, in that as you start to try to frame out a scene and put people that you knew in it and yourself in it as well, you start to remember things that you didn't think you did remember, but that, you know, it was just a sketch, but I, it wasn't that long ago. That was like 1998. And, um, you know, I just remember it very well. And I, I should say about the eighties and that, yeah, fluctuations in, you know, destinies and the market. I didn't live in New York in the eighties. So it's, that's just something I know of from following the art world. I mean, I, I visited there in the eighties as a teenager because I have family there. And my aunt's an artist, and, but m- like my and my cousin is an artist, but they weren't involved in the money <laughs> art world. He, you know, was a Lower East Side kind of renegade um, iron worker and still is, although he lives upstate now. He's a farmer, um, but his world was much more kind of gritty, grungy East Village, you know, like lots where this band the Lunatics, would play and it was much more mixed in with the old school like Alphabet City kind of downtown 81 you know Lower East Side thing not a world in which that many people got rich I don't know I guess it's just I always hung out in the art world so it's easy for me to conjure the details and with the Mars Room since you bring it up um with that book, it's I consider it in a way a California novel, which is not to reduce it to something regional. I mean, I think California is a pretty significant place given that we have the fifth largest economy in the world. It's a huge state and it's a really complicated place with so much variability, you know, socially, geographically. And I basically am from here, here meaning I'm in Los Angeles right now, I grew up in San Francisco. I'm, you know, eventually after New York, moved to Los Angeles. Um, I'm involved in worlds that inform what ended up being processed into that novel. And the remembrances that the narrator Romy provides about her childhood in San Francisco are very familiar to me because I placed her Uh, in the neighborhood where I grew up and among my own friend group, which at first felt a little unusual for me, like uncomfortable territory, because I've written fiction that was more fictiony. But in this case, it was really necessary to do it because I needed to be able to fully inhabit her perspective um, in order to track and feel and have um, a command and range to make her believably somebody who was encountering that world in prison. If I if I made her somebody who was really different than me and had a different background and put her in a world that I obviously have not experienced firsthand, I haven't done time in prison, it just would have been too hard. I had to make her a girl who was from a background like my own. And otherwise I just, I couldn't do it. I tried. And so it was sort of a conjoining together And also in my own background and the people I grew up with, there are a lot of really sad stories. And then suddenly it became a way to sort of process what happened to people. And so the details, I didn't have to make them up because they were right there. Of course. It's the question of what to
1: include versus not what to include so that the reader
3: understands Well, that's the art. You have to get on a wavelength, I think, um, where you're really listening to the tone of the book and the sound of the person who's doing the telling and just be scrupulous. Like, it has to fit with their tone. It can't just be because you think it's a neat detail.
1: Thinking of the essay about red, I know you're a fan of Underworlds. Did you read anything in preparation for retelling this story besides his letters, I guess?
3: No, honestly, I mean, I I don't want to scare anybody off who might would listen to this and hasn't read it, but I wrote that in like two hours. I mean, I was busy (laughs) and I promised them I would do it. And um, because it was a kind of, it was a ready-made, as they say in the art world, because it already happened and I had all the letters And so I just read through them and picked out um, passages that I thought kind of captured his tone and were funny. Um, Like he would make these sort of funny like shifts, you know, or how about lunch? Um, And then just told the story just straight. And then I remembered the part about, um, you know, Huey, the guy I call Huey Lewis on crack and how we'd run into Red. And then I thought, well, you know, I should include a little bit about him too, since he was such a funny character who really was f- totally focused on preparing for the millennium as many people were, but he would not shut up about it. He would talk about it for like six hours um, straight when he was working on my place. And he was just um, convinced that society was going to totally collapse. Yeah. Um, you know, some people I was have an 11 year old I was with my son the other day and we saw somebody that had like one of those real military grade Hummers and my son goes actually he was 10 at the time this was like six months ago and he goes you know the people who are preparing for the apocalypse one thing about them is they kind of want it to come because they're excited to use all their stuff yes <laughs> And uh, yes, this guy was a little bit like that. I mean, he really did buy a like a carbon fiber, aluminum foldable motocross bike, a motorcycle. It was like 85cc that he was telling me he's going to be the only person who can travel because all the roads are going to collapse. The whole infrastructure will disintegrate. Anyway, so it was easy to write because all the characters and my memory of them was all right there. Um, It's interesting you mentioned Underworld. Yeah, I do like that book a lot. And I had reread it recently because I was asked to write a preface to a a UK, a new edition of it. And um, I once heard something that DeLillo said um, about the time when he was, the era when he was writing it, you know, as he... It moves backward chronologically, right? And um, as you get back, I mean, it starts in 1951, I think, with that um, World Series game, but then it goes up more recent and then moves backward in time. And as he gets to the part where the um, two brothers are, like, young Italian guys living in the Bronx off Arthur Avenue with their families, Um, I love that those parts of the book are so evocative. And he goes, this is Delillo. He said, there was a period of time when I was the world's leading expert on four square blocks off Arthur Avenue. And I am that really meant a lot to me. Cause I, he, uh, he said it in a time when I was actually trying to write the Mars Room and a little bit stuck, but I had written these parts about, San Francisco and the Sunset District, where I'm from. And I thought, well, you know, it's okay to be the world's leading expert on this reticulated patch of memory and history and place. And it's not only okay, it's actually really important in a way, because otherwise that history will not get written down. Like the way in which he, in Delilah's extremely modest style and manner, Claimed the world's leading expert on something that, you know, historians are not competing for. It was very inspiring to me.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for twenty-one ninety-seven visit harpers.org slash save.